to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Health providers and advocates are sounding the alarm about the growing number of Americans who are struggling with anxiety and depression, substance abuse, and suicide. Now, a group of 14 leaders representing mental health advocacy organizations, philanthropy, and professional guilds are calling on the Biden-Harris administration, along with state and local leaders, to take action. COVID taught us anything in this last year. So much pain and suffering for so many. But that this is not an issue of just one in four of us or one in five of us. It is every single one of us. And our shared suffering that is leading to half of the American population feeling mild to moderate anxiety and depression, increased people experiencing suicidal ideation and too many completing it, and people falling back in their addictions and struggling. The veil has been pulled back on the system failure and the racism that has been part of the system failure. And now it's much more clear what we need to do. That is Tyler Norris. He is the chief executive of the California-based Wellbeing Trust, it's a healthcare nonprofit dedicated to improving mental, social, and spiritual health in the nation. And Norris is one of the coalition leaders calling on policymakers to take action now. The group has put forward a 17 page plan, and it's organized around seven pillars or principles. At the end of the day, what they want to see is full funding and improved access to whole health care for communities. And for Norris, that plan must include faith-based and spiritual community care. Unlike many of his peers in the coalition who are physicians, Norris holds a Master's of Divinity. He earned that MDiv from a Buddhist-affiliated institution in Boulder, Colorado, Naropa University. It was founded in 1974 by Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyang Trungpa. And Norris credits that educational experience with shaping his views on spiritual well-being and the challenges facing a divided nation. I grew up in you know, rural Idaho, conservative. The values of the community in many ways are, are more traditional and, and religious in their way. And I've also spent a lot of my time in urban America. I've had the chance to do community-based work in over 500 cities uh, and towns across the United States, in every state. And uh, I am always struck that despite political point of view or background or income or education level, that many of us want the same thing for our lives, for our families, for our country. And uh, I love working locally because somehow uh, we work across the lines that often divide and find common ground. The local pragmatism is something I truly value. And so I think we need to bring that basic sense of our mutuality, our common faith, that, that the well-being of our children is tied up and bound up in each other and our communities in our environment and, uh, and recognize our shared identity and shared faith. As a Christian, I can say that our, the teachings of my is they love one another. And with that, we can of course have spirited disagreement, but also find ways to work together. So I think our faith tradition, um, which in my faith tradition is one of radical inclusion, right? The one where the, the prostitute and the tax collector, so-called outsider are invited to the table that, that to me is a, is a, is a North Star for, for how to begin with the dignity of all people, regardless of how they might be seen, what they do, who they are, any walk of life or lived experience they might have. 
You have a unique graduate degree for someone in the space of healthcare leadership. You have a master's in divinity from a university that is affiliated or at least inspired by Buddhist teachings. What drew you to Naropa? I went straight to work after college and then looked back for a couple of years, raised a family. I kind of was straight ahead and, and at, a, at midlife, I, I wanted to, to grow again and, and refresh in a way. And I, I was always interested in the MDiv studies. And uh, so I found the one MDiv offering in the community that I lived in with my family. And it happened to be Buddhist, which as a Christian was very interesting to me. But I have to say, I loved the Buddhist studies of the mind, the awareness of how am I thinking? How am I feeling? What's real? How do I meet the world as it is? How do I show up with presence? So in the chaplaincy training, in that chaplaincy is an interfaith practice, it was an extraordinary discipline within which to deepen my own tradition studies and train to be a chaplain and kind of engage the, this, this maybe a bit of a trinity of academics and work and service as a chaplain, sitting with people in prison, in jail, who were dying, struggling, and practice. Talk to me a little bit about what the practice looks like now. My practice? Well, that's a very good question. Immediately on earning my Master of Divinity, uh, I was engaged by Kaiser Permanente and moved to Oakland to lead a large part of that integrated health system. It's total health uh, around a whole people, spirit, mind, body, and how that large health system could bring all of its resources to bear. And so we worked to build healthy communities and then um, was, uh, was contacted by the Sisters of Providence and the Sisters of St. Joseph and the Providence Health System uh, to help them lead a new mental health philanthropy, what would become the first uh, nationwide philanthropy focused on mental health and addiction and creating, uh, not only saving 100,000 lives from deaths of despair, alcohol, opioids, and suicide, but increasing well-being for all in America. California in particular has been a leader in advancing and integrating mental health parity to be viewed not as a silo from physical health, but as part of it. But I also know that the translation of that policy into practice has been a struggle from the view of a lot of practitioners, community-based organizations, and frankly, Anyone who's listening who has a family member who has struggled with mental health challenges or illnesses is intimately aware of the disparity that exists and the struggle for getting that kind of support before COVID-19, before this pandemic, before the national, um, and I almost call it a second reckoning with systemic racism. There were growing conversations about the link between trauma, mental health, criminal justice, absence of resources related to poverty. So many conversations in which mental health was starting to become part of the conversation and now we have this coalition encouraging the Biden administration to lead on. And I know you're a member of that. I want to ask you first, how significant is it that this coalition has come together? It is very significant. And the agenda that is being uh, woven by organizations that have never really found truly common ground and aligned forces across the mental health field, the addiction field the professional guilds, like the American Psychiatric and Psychological Association, the philanthropies in the field, the providers, uh, thousands of community health providers across the country and the National Council on Behavioral Health, groups like NAMI uh, and Mental Health America, um, 
and states doing this work, coming together with a common vision and specifically what we ought to be doing in the short term. What actions, what top three actions are you looking for from this 17-page plan for this administration to move forward on? I'll just tell you, I'm in my early 60s. I've been at this work a long time. And I've learned a few things over the years from working all across the nation that, first of all, you need to start with equity. We need to understand that all means all and that the health of Black America, Brown America, Indigenous America, and our immigrant population, half of the babies born, and that all Americans have to understand that our fate is tied in the success of communities of color. So we have work to do to provide opportunity for communities of color so that we can all do well in our schools, in our workplace, in our community. So we must start with equity and all we are and do, rooted in those faith principles, if that's who you are. Secondly, we need to make sure that we go all in as communities. There are three main levers that we must all be pulling together. The first of these is to get the care right. Secondly, to pay for access to that care. And third is to create the conditions for mental health and well-being in the first place. So get the care right. Let's start with that. Integrated whole person care. If somebody is struggling with diabetes and depression, and we're trying to get someone to eat healthier and move more, cut their tobacco, out, moderate the alcohol, but not their depression isn't being addressed, those behaviors are how someone's navigating the day. We have to have integrated care, no wrong door spirit, mind, body addressed together, along with making assessment and referral to non-medical needs a standard of care. So integrated mental health care and physical care while addressing social needs. That's what it means to get the care right. That is an ethical responsibility of health systems to deliver that care, and we ought to be calling for it as residents. Secondly, we've got to increase the affordability of access to that care for all in America. California made a bold step forward. California SB 855 last autumn increased access to mental health and addiction care for 13 and a half million Californians. That could save tens of thousands of lives. Illinois, Georgia, or others are on that path of states practicing the gold standard of mental health parity. Very exciting to see what's happening across the country in mental health. We've got to get, get it paid for. And third is the conditions in our communities help shape human flourishing. If that mother and child to have a safe, healing, loving environment, food, security, all the basics we know, that child is less likely to have adverse child events. That child is more likely to have mental, emotional well-being and to be more resilient over time. That's what's needed here. Get the care right, get it paid for, and create communities that are gardens to grow our young people in for their well-being, mentally, emotionally, physically, and to build resilience against life's slings and arrows. Talk about the role that you see individual faith playing in this and faith institutions. Where do both of those fit into this? The first is purpose. There is a reason I am here. I feel a sense of meaning in my life. There is a way that I contribute. I have a sense of calling or vocation, that there is meaning. Everyone needs that, that seed in every one of us. And every faith tradition reminds us of this. Secondly, and it's sort of a a combination to 
purpose, if you will, of expression of purpose is belonging, which is I know where I'm safe, my people are, where I'm loved, where I am welcome. Both the ability to express myself through purpose, whatever that might be, the arts, music, dance, sciences, working, serving, but also to know where we belong goes hand in glove. The third, awe and wonder, something greater than ourselves. It, we could see it in, in nature, a sunset, or a, a beautiful conversation, or a, a significance, a beautiful meal together, or just our heart opening in shared grief that so many of us have had. And fourth, an opportunity to give back through service, to contribute. <laughs> we all love to do something for others. And when those are intact, purpose, belonging, awe and wonder, and opportunities for service, more of us thrive. Faith community can remind us that we are all in this together. The faith community reminds us that we are spiritual beings having a human experience and that if we're having emotional addiction challenge, they are spiritual issues to a great extent, as well as brain health issues. And the compassion and love and kindness that is needed for people who are struggling is God willing what our faith communities ought be best at not as sources of divisiveness, but as safe places for people to be who they are and be safe. We can certainly find examples of, of all denominations and faith traditions having voices and groups within them who seem to spark more divisiveness than reminding us that we are one human race. I think one of the most important things we can do as faith communities is pull back the shame and open the dialogue in real terms. This is a place for healing and truth-telling. The most important human need is to be heard. Many years ago, Archbishop Desmond Tutu from South Africa, one of the leaders of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, came to our little community. We took our kids to see him. And he said, the most important human need is to be heard. And we said, how did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission even begin to work after so much? He said, because we listen to each other, we created safe space. Faith communities of all stripes can do that. And that's an opportunity. Again, some with serious mentalists will always need their medications and safety. I am not just talking about that. I'm talking about all the rest of us with our mental health struggles at home, at work, at school, wherever we may be. And the faith community has an extraordinary place to say you are welcome. All of you, the way you are, is welcome here. That was Tyler Norris, the chief executive of the Wellbeing Trust, a national nonprofit based in Oakland, California. As Norris calls for faith leaders to partner in addressing the mental health crisis, one challenge remains, stigma especially in immigrant communities. Coming up after the break, we meet an Afghan-American psychotherapist and psychology professor who is using her story and her voice to call Muslim faith leaders to help end the stigma attached to getting help. That's coming up after this short break. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Thank you. 